Hi there, Duke fans. Welcome to episode 227 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. I am your captain on the ship this week. My name is Jason Evans. I am joined, as always, my first mates, co-first mates. First of all, Samuel Klein. Sam, where are you hanging out right now? I am um, fully moved into my new apartment in Boston, and I started a new job this week. So it's been... Um, it's been it's been a little bit of, of madness around here, but I'm I'm finally starting to to settle down again, which is great. And I also know from social media and talking to friends that school started at uh, at Fuqua at the business school at Duke yesterday. So uh, that was that was cool to to see that they are they're back on campus in a limited way. They're they're doing a sort of pseudo in person pseudo online version of the thing. So so it was cool to see that kicking off. And uh, also, as always, Donald Wine is with us. Donald, um, still still in Texas, but headed home soon? Yes, I will be headed home probably a couple hours after we record here uh, on Tuesday morning. Uh, so I will be heading back to D.C. But for now, the last couple hours uh, in the state, uh, or I'm sorry, I should say the Republic of Texas. <laughs> uh, folks, we have a, a chock full episode with some really interesting stuff for you. But we're going to start... Um, with a conversation that I had uh, just yesterday with Henry Coleman, um, freshman on the Duke basketball team. Um, Henry, as you will recall, we, we took the very unusual step last week of beginning an episode with words from Henry Coleman. We did not include the Duke band at the top. Instead, all we had was Henry speaking some very, very powerful words that he had spoken uh, about the issue of social justice in society. Um, and in the wake of that, the Duke basketball uh, media department made Henry available to reporters because uh, his um, his the, the speech he gave and the words he spoke had resonated so much across the sporting world landscape. And so uh, Henry sat down via Zoom with um, two dozen reporters. I was very fortunate to be one of them. I, I will tell you, I will tell you, I've done a, I've done a pretty fair number of these. I have in the course of my time interviewed. A lot of different basketball players, mostly Duke players, but different basketball players from different teams. I've rarely been as impressed with the poise and and calm and thoughtfulness of a player as I was when I spoke to Henry Coleman. Uh, th this kid, we are we are so fortunate to have him, and I know a lot of people are unsure how much of an impact he's going to make on the floor, the impact he's going to make in the locker room, the impact he is going to make as as a leader and as an example to other players in the team, I think is incalculable. I'm going to stop talking now and let you listen to the interview. Uh, it begins with a question from a reporter um, from Richmond. Henry's from Virginia, and there were a number of uh, local reporters who joined this call. Uh, you'll then hear me and a couple other folks ask a few different questions. Have a listen to Henry Coleman as he speaks about both the social justice message that he gave and, and also I, I got to ask him a couple questions about practice and about his teammates and the current state of the Duke team. And make sure you stick around. His last answer is a giant. It's such a great one. Have a listen. Here is Henry Coleman talking to the media uh, about being a brand new freshman at Duke. Your, uh, your, your your remarks on Thursday during the protest, I think, moved a lot of people. Just want to curious what inspired that and, uh, you know, just kind of how thankful you were for the opportunity to be able to get that chance to uh, address the student body during that protest. Yeah, I thought it was an unbelievable job by Coach K and Coach Nolan, what they had set up. But I was just moved just to speak for the people that didn't have a voice. Uh, my parents told me I always just used my platform. Um, I built this platform 
Um, they always tell me you wouldn't build a house and not sleep in it. Uh, so I just have to use this platform and continue to talk. Yeah. Hey, Henry. So first of all, the moment that the team came up behind you when you were delivering that statement on Thursday and, and they, all, they all came up to support you and be a part of what you were saying, what was that planned in advance? How did that make you feel? What, what went into all of that? Um, it was not planned. I think it was just those guys being uh, my brothers and being with me. It almost felt like a security blanket. It felt like I had people around me uh, that truly cared and that really followed the message with me. And, and a little bit of a follow-up to that, uh, you're just a freshman. How did it feel to be sort of one of the leaders of the team, one of the guys chosen to make that, that statement and, and to have so many guys following you like that? Do you perceive yourself as, as a leader, even though you're so new to the program? Um, it's just some, some capabilities I always have. Um, I, I feel like I can lead these guys, but there are other guys on this team that are way more experienced than me, and that have way more knowledge, and that I can just kind of be a sponge and, you know, soak up all the knowledge that they uh, have to give me. But uh, I have those leadership qualities that I will be able to, you know, keep voicing and keep leading. So, Henry, I, I, I want to ask you a little bit about practice. I know that you guys have only just begun to sort of get into groups where you're playing with other players uh, and not just doing individual stuff. Who's really impressed you? Uh, you know, who are the guys out there that you go, wow, I can't believe that this guy can do that or whatever else it may be. And, and then after you answer, I've got to want to follow up about your specific play. But, but start with your teammates first. I mean, it, it's kind of crazy seeing like all the guys and what they can do um, from the guard perspective and from the wings and to the bigs. Um, everybody's working hard. But a couple of people that have just, you know, were, are remarkable. Every time I watch DJ shoot the ball, um, it's funny. We do some shooting shooting competitions together at the end of practice um and it's just like you know i kind of get you know five real quick and then dj gets 10 threes out of nowhere um so it's just true it's just unbelievable uh, and then you know seeing jalen and jamin and mark a couple other freshman guys they, they're just a, so real athletes uh mark at seven feet being able to do some of the stuff that he does is kind of crazy and then jalen and jamin being freakish athletes you know being able to handle the ball and do other things is Pretty cool. And then for the upperclassmen guys, Jay Gold, uh, Joey, Wendell, Matt, those guys, you know, continue to get better each every day. You know, I continue to learn from them, seeing some of the stuff that they do on and off the court. Hey, really quick, best three-point shooter on the team, DJ or Joey? Oh, man, that's hard. That's definitely hard. That's, that's a hard one right there. Uh, I, I got to see that. I got to see this one, though. I might got to bring that up to the guys soon. So, and I wanted to follow up. Has Coach K talked to you about what your role will be on this team? I think a lot of guys probably have a good sense of what their role is going to be, and I'm not, I'm not as sure that I have a, have a good sense of what your role is going to be this season. Uh, not yet. Coach and I, you know, he continue to get better. That's what he te uh, teaches me every day and talks to me about, you know, continuing to get better, you know, with your skills and, you know, what, what I have to do for this team for them to win. Hey, Henry, J.B. Ricks with uh, Spectrum News One. Thanks so much for taking out time. Uh, my question for you is, you know, these are unprecedented times that we're going through right now, and it's always going to be a challenge for any incoming class, you know, to gel and build that chemistry that you need. Um, and with Duke, this is kind of the norm, like, you know, four-star, four, four star, five-star freshmen coming in. How have the things that have been taking place in our society and, you know, the pandemic, how, how have these things helped build the chemistry that you incoming freshmen have to have with this Duke team knowing that you guys are going through things that we've never seen before? Yeah, I think, honestly, even before a lot of this was happening, 
uh, we were already close. Most of the guys we had known each other through camps, through even playing together. Um, but then with these things coming along, it's definitely brought us uh, closer. Um, we've just been able to, you know, to talk about a lot of the stuff that's been going on. Um, but then we kind of use basketball as this safe haven. You know, we're out there shooting around, joking around and just playing. Everything else in the outside world kind of goes away. And we're just, you know, you're focused on making that shot, getting that steal, you know, or just getting that win. So we use that ba basketball as that safe haven kind of, you know, kind of to get rid of the outside world and kind of focus on just basketball. So, Henry, I wanted to ask you about the situation on campus. Uh, have you all, has the team interacted with other students very much at all? Or, or have you guys tried to sort of stay in just a basketball slash athletic bubble out of safety? And, and as a, you know, sort of as, as an appendum to that, have you all talked about or thought at all about the notion of perhaps being in a bubble for the basketball season and not being a part of life on Duke campus? Uh, for right now, we're just kind of, you know, in our little basketball bubble, you could say. Uh, we still have the option of going into our in-person classes. Uh, some of the guys still do that. And, you know, Duke is doing a great job of socially distancing those classrooms and, you know, having smaller groups. Um, but for right now, we have not talked about that as a team. We just continue to kind of stay in our little bubble uh, that we have now. All right, Henry, one last question, uh, not related to basketball. What are your passions outside of the game? Um, I'm a huge, uh, hopefully a lot of people know this, but I love to be outdoors. Um, I love to go fishing. Um, I like just being out in nature, you know. Uh, one of my favorite authors is uh, Henry David Thoreau. Uh, he's a guy, you know, he always preached on, you know, being out in nature. Um, so that's one of my favorite things to do. So, guys, Henry David Thoreau. I can't believe that we have on our basketball team a guy who, when someone said, hey, what do you do for fun? He said, well, you know, I like to read Henry David Thoreau. I, I consider myself a reasonably intellectual person. I, I, it, it's just been a while since I did a Thoreau, and I think it was because I was assigned to do it, not because I wanted to. Uh, it just shows the intellectual curiosity of this guy. Uh, Donald, go first. What did you think of the interview? What do you think of Henry? Uh, I think he's great. You know, I, I you were moved by the the thorough part and being out in nature. Those are things that I did when I was 18. Come on. I mean, this is this, this child's play. But what I will say is there was one part that he spoke about in the beginning that I thought showed the poise that you were you were saying when he said that he was, quote, moved to speak for the people who didn't have a voice. That is not a lot. That's not something a lot of 18 year olds say or do. And like I mentioned last show, the fact that he's a freshman, the fact that he has is in his first few weeks on campus, that he knows very few people probably outside of the basketball team because he mentioned that they were in this bubble. Uh, the fact that he's able to step up and feel the confidence to speak on behalf of so many is is something that a lot of people don't have. And it's, it's almost regrettable that he has to show that poise at this point in his college career on something so uh, poignant, but also serious natured. Uh, you know, we want to see that leadership on the court, and we and we can tell from what we're hearing from him now that that will translate onto the court very easily. You know, but the fact that he has been th that he has thrust himself forward and this movement, uh, at least on the Duke campus, is something that a lot of people don't get to experience. And 
really that like it just shows the kind of kid that he is and the kind of leader that he's going to be because remember he's only 18 years old this isn't the peak of his leadership uh career he he's just beginning and if he's beginning on this level then damn like what i mean i gotta get going because uh i i think you know i'm not not to get political but you know barack obama and and, and several other people have said over the last few weeks that this young generation, this, these 18, 19, 20-year-olds have been leading this social justice movement, and we're seeing that with our athletes as well. I mean, yes, we're, we'll talk about the NBA. We've talked about the NBA, but a lot of college kids are stepping up too, and, and Henry Coleman is no exception to that. And really, uh, again, I, I'll say it like I said last year, I'm damn glad that he's on this team. I don't want us to resort to the – the the tropes about like oh the you know these are guys who go to duke they're obviously very worldly and all that no th- this kid clearly is is a a little bit above and beyond what i would expect from from any duke student or certainly any duke student athlete the, as you said donald the fact that he was was so young and able to to step up in front of all of those people he doesn't he doesn't know people on campus yet he 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 knows his teammates cuz he's been primarily texting with them, but he's seen them in person a little bit here over the summer. I mean, he's brand new to this and he's stepping right into the spotlight. It's an immense thing to see and not something that comes along very often. Like I'm I'm trying to remember a a Duke student athlete who, who took this, who had this much of a voice this early in their career. Like Nolan Smith has developed into this kind of person. It took him until his like junior, senior year of college before he was really like the big man on campus outspoken about about things as a freshman he was he was pretty quiet and and i remember because because i was on campus with him so it's not like it's not like he was he was that guy but but henry coleman is clearly that guy so it's going to be a joy to to watch him and root for him the next few years and then moving from that i want to talk a little bit about the the team because he he meant jason asked him about the progress of the team. I think that the, the three-point shooting contest that that he alluded to between DJ Stewart and and Joey Baker is going to be something to behold. So hopefully uh, Duke social media gets gets a hold of that and they maybe they do like a you know a, a contest behind the scenes that they can that they can videotape for us. So so that was exciting. But um, you know if if we're going to have a, a season this year and if it's going to start any time in the next few months, which I think is still pretty up in the air. We've said that there are a lot of new guys on this team, and, and Coleman's not one that we, you know, ask us a week ago, do we think Henry Coleman is going to play a significant role on the court this year for Duke? Probably not. Uh, there are a lot of guys ahead of him. He's a he's a four-star. Duke has tons of five-stars on the roster, other big guys. So is, is Henry Coleman expected to play a lot? Not necessarily, but if we know that he has this kind of attitude, Coach K loves guys with this kind of attitude. He loves Emil Jefferson's. He loves Matt Jones. He, he, you know, the this this kind of player plays for Duke. And maybe it's not his freshman year. Maybe it's down the road. But but we will see him in games. But I'm I'm glad that we also got to ask him a little bit about basketball because as much you know as as stimulating as I think it is for us to talk about all the issues. At the end of the day, we are the Duke basketball report. So it is it is good to hear a little bit about basketball once in a while. And so when you're talking about when you're talking about the leadership aspect of things and you were talking about, you know, how Nolan Smith as a freshman and sophomore wasn't really vocal with his leadership and grew into that role as he blossomed. We also were in a time back then where we had guys ahead of him that had that leadership that he could defer to. And in this one and done era, you know, we just lost a few guys from last year and now we have a brand new slate of guys. Yeah, we still have some 
you know, some older upperclassmen that are still on the team, but there's a role for a freshman leader to step up. And, and honestly, the way you said it with, you know, comparing to Matt Jones and Emil Jefferson, they all had, you know, maybe one quality that got them on the floor, but their leadership also kept them on the floor too, because they're, and by the way, unit, they're going to need it. By the way, look at, to, to demonstrate how, how inexperienced this team is. Wendell Moore is the player that Coach K wanted to appoint to the to the players council. And by all accounts, I mean, we, we don't know this yet, but by all accounts, he's probably going to be a captain and he's only a sophomore. And I, I think we've only had sophomore captains twice before on, on the Duke basketball team. So this is going to be a young team. The experienced players are not necessarily the ones who have played the most minutes, save for Moore and Hurt. And those guys are only sophomores. I just want to, again, thank Duke for allowing me and others to to speak to Henry. It, it, it was it was a great experience. He 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 revealed a lot to us. Uh, and and one last thing on the Henry David Thoreau thing, there was someone on Twitter, uh, clearly one of the reporters who had been on the call, who who tweeted at Henry and said, "Hey, Henry told us all that his favorite author is Henry David Thoreau." And Henry Coleman corrected him. He said, "No, no, I didn't say favorite author. I said favorite t- transcendentalist." I, I'm sorry, uh, guys. How many college basketball players even know what the word transcendentalist means? I <laughs> how many people? How many? People? Yeah, exactly. This I knew what it was, special, but I went. To, I went to Duke, and I learned that at Duke. Yeah. I learned when I got there. <laughs> I, I had a I have a special place in my heart for this moment because I used to uh, when I was in college, I used to watch Jeopardy every day with one of my good friends, and one of the things we like to do when we watch Jeopardy is for the final for final Jeopardy, you know, they put the um category they put the category up and then they take a commercial break and then they come back what we would try to do is guess the clue or, or guess the oh, answer I do the same just thing. With the, yeah i do the just same with the thing. category yeah. I, I think yeah. this is common and uh, the one time i got it right was uh play the, the category was places in literature and i guessed walden pond so i was i was very <laughs> nice. excited i was very excited that, that henry coleman is into david thoreau <laughs> Very well done. Very well done. Oh, and real yeah. quick, a real quick sidebar. I, I think, you know, you, you thank Duke for having us uh, on to have these interviews. I, I thank them as well. But also, I think it's great that they're doing more of these uh, interview availabilities. We've seen, I mean, I don't know if it's because of COVID or, or what, but during oh, this oh, pandemic. because of COVID. <laughs> or, or, I mean, but, COVID, you know, I mean, yeah. like, it's easy to get, a, you know, 40 guys on, on a Zoom call or, I'm sorry, 40 journalists on a Zoom call and say, yeah, uh, we're going to have this guy available. I hope that continues during the season because it, it's giving us a lot of, ins- a lot of chances to, uh, get some more insight into the personality of these players. And I know that, you know, the social media does a great job, but this is another way of doing it. And I'm glad that Duke is stepping up and, and doing that. Yeah. Oh, definitely. It's been a lot of fun. They they limit it, by the way, to 25 reporters. They don't want it to be too crazy. And one of the things that I really like is that the other reporters like to listen. Uh, so I get to ask lots of questions. Right. <laughs> we heard Jason, your voice are, several times during that. During that Jason, are you saying that you like to talk? Oh, who, me? No. Who, you? No. <laughs> Not a talkative guy. All right, so so guys, we're going to move on. Uh, we want, do want to talk a little bit about the NBA because the NBA playoffs are still going on. And there was a dookie in the NBA who just got a very, very big honor. Brandon Ingram has been named the most improved player in the NBA he, he narrowly edged out Bam Adebayo of the Miami Heat for the award. Luka Doncic was also in the running for this award. He came in third. I, I will openly predict 
that this is the absolute last time, the last time ever that Luka Doncic will be considered for most improved player. <laughs> that dude's had had a hell of a season, but we're here to celebrate Brandon Ingram, um, who really, really stepped up, stepped up his scoring significantly. Uh, he, he became a much bigger outside threat. I think I read someplace that Brandon Ingram made more three-pointers in this aborted season than he had in his entire NBA career up until now. I'm not 100% certain of that, but I think that's what I read. But huge props to Brandon. This is, the most improved player is a big deal award. So, uh, you know, just really happy for him to, to have done that well. And, and, and he, he didn't make the playoffs, but there's still a couple Dukies still playing. Jason Tatum leading the Boston Celtics is sort of the most prominent guy still going on in the playoffs. Uh, Sam, can I go to you first? Just want to really quick ask, you know, any thoughts on the NBA and, and the playoffs and, and, and what the Dukies are doing right now? Yeah, and don't forget that Jason Tatum also uh, appeared right at the top of that voting list for, for most improved player. So we, I think, I think it's worth us taking a few moments and celebrating both of those guys. As you said, Ingram for the leap that he's made this year, particularly on offense. But I think as a leader on the team, we know that he is – He's a, a quiet, kind of reserved guy. He was like that at Duke. He was like that his first few years in the NBA. He still kind of is, but he's really blossoming into a into a into a top tier player in the league. And that, and we've said before that that change of scenery for him from going from LA, which which is nothing to say nothing bad about the Lakers organization. They've got LeBron. They've got a lot of guys who are who are playing well there. But Ingram getting to to flex a little bit more and, and be a little bit more of the focal point of the offense and play with Lonzo Ball has been awesome for him this year in New Orleans, not to mention being surrounded by so many Duke guys, including in the front office there with, with Trajan Langdon running the show. And then for Jason Tatum, I mean, he's been he's been fantastic in these playoffs and 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 almost won this this most improved player. And usually when you see that most improved player award, it's hard for a guy who was already at Jason Tatum's level to 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 be eligible for it this year but but that's how much he's grown as a player and he's he's at both ends of the floor uh he, he's working incredibly hard and, and the Celtics look great right now um they've had they, they had an excellent game against the Raptors the the Bucks stumbled the Bucks who were the top seed in the east stumbled the other night against the Miami Heat so I think you can see that the the East is open for any of these teams to make it to the finals, and Tatum's the most important, perhaps, player on the Celtics. So, so good oh, for him. And, and yeah, I know he's will definitely be, most important. Yeah, we'll be we'll be we'll be tuning in. I, I think to see that he's he, you know Quinn Cook is is still playing for the Lakers. Obviously, um, Austin Rivers is still in the playoffs with the with the Rockets. There in a wild series with the Oklahoma City Thunder, um, but uh, but. Um, Tatum is the is the most important player from at least from the Duke fans perspective who is still left in this playoff. So definitely have to pay attention to him. Brandon Ingram deserved this award. You know, Jason, you were talking about the three point uh, shooting that he did. He averaged less than a three point uh, three pointer made per game entering this season. And this season he went to 2.4. So that right there, the, the level that he shot was incredible. You know, J.J. Redick rivaled in Marvel at times at how he he's like, you know, Brandon Ingram is a better three-point shooter than I am this season. And, and J.J. is a pretty good three-point shooter. Uh, but I will say on Tatum, I do think if they took the bubble into account when factoring in uh, voting for these awards, Jason Tatum would have won just based on those first eight seeding games. Uh, he would have edged out Brandon Ingram, I think, because that is when he took his game from otherworldly status to he's 
actually one of the top 10 players in the NBA status. And he's continued that throughout these playoffs. You've really seen it. Uh, I will note that uh, our boy Mason Plumley is also still in these playoffs. And I will tell you just sidebar, the game of the playoffs has been Jamal Murray versus Donovan Mitchell. And that series concludes tonight. Must as see we record. TV. Must it's, see been, TV. it's been out of control. I mean, the, the, as good as we, as much as we were enjoying the end of the regular season in the bubble, the playoff games so far have just been, been unreal. Have been unreal. The, and, and the Houston, Oklahoma City series, uh, you know, it, it's crazy too. So yeah, it, it's been extremely fun to watch. Yeah, I've watched every single game of these playoffs, like literally every single game. I don't care if it's at one o'clock or, or eight o'clock in the evening, but I, when I tell you that that matchup, I want to see for the next decade Mitchell versus Murray because that has been absolutely fantastic. And I think if you're if if you listen to this this afternoon, tune in tonight Tuesday because Game Seven is going to be a monster. You will not want to miss. And is that like theoretically Denver and 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 Utah should be rivals, right? Because they are geographically similar. I, yeah. When I lived in Denver, I did not detect that that was the case, but I don't think there was a lot of Nuggets fever when I was there in the first place. So um, maybe it's maybe it's sparking a, a, a rivalry that, that hopefully lasts for a while. They were pseudo rivals back in the 90s, you know, when the Jazz had stocked them alone and uh, the Nuggets had Dikembe Mutombo. They were going at each other in the playoffs, but it was always, you know, because the Jazz were, you know, the Jazz, they were always beating the Nuggets back then. So it wasn't, it was a rivalry of sorts, but it was more like the Nuggets say, damn, we always get to this point and lose to the Jazz. But then again, everyone in the Western Conference was, and then the Jazz would just go out and lose to the Bulls. You know, I do want to point out, we've mentioned a lot of different names of different Dukies out there. There, there is one more that we are neglecting to mention and we haven't talked about. And, and I want to interview him at some point, but now is obviously not the right time. The, the head coach of the Utah Jazz is Quinn Snyder, and he's doing a heck of a job with that team. I, I know Quinn is not quite in the running for coach of the year. Um, probably going to be, I think it's probably going to be Nick Nurse. or Nick Nurse already won it. Oh, Nick Nurse already won it. Yeah, yeah. Not surprised at that. Um, and, and over in the East, there are a number of guys doing some really great jobs. Eric Spolstra. Certainly, um, Brad Stevens in Boston's, uh, you know, doing a great job coaching. But, but Quinn Snyder is up there. Um, you know, if you were putting together a list of the top 10 coaches in the NBA right now, I think there's no question that Quinn would be on that list. And, and he des- deserves some props for, for giving the ball to Donovan Mitchell and, and uh, watching him go to work. Honestly, just how he had to deal with everything. I mean, think about it. The NBA stopped because the coronavirus started on his team. They had and that we heard, rift. We had the rift yeah, between so Gobert and about, Mitchell. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, putting those guys back together because those were his two best players. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know, that was a that was an incredible job that probably isn't reflected in the voting, but I, I see you, Quinn. Quinn Snyder's also wearing the tightest pants in the bubble. Like, by far. <laughs> It's painful to watch him walking that. up and down the court. You you haven't noticed this? I feel like I, it's very striking. I've noticed it, but I wasn't going to mention it. I was going to let it go, and you I think it's to important. bring it up. I think it's important. The, the, the poor man looks like he needs it. He I mean, maybe like his tailor is so good, it's like he's so perfect. There's some high-water pants is what we would call them down in the south. They're the ones that you wear when you go fishing. When you go fly fishing, you you know, the, the uh, what Payne Stewart used to wear, those type of things. He needs, he needs, he needs a tailor. He needs a tailor bag. Hey, Quinn is a fashionista. The dude has always been well. I will tell you. So I was in the class with Quinn. We lived together, not literally same room, but we, you know, same same building. We hung hung in the same circles as freshmen. Um, 
Quinn Snyder has always been a very well-dressed young man. And and look, it, this is coming from two bald guys and a guy that looks like Jason. So you know, <laughs> take all of our take all of our uh, take all of our sartorial advice with a grain of salt. But yes, <laughs> we love you, Quinn. Amen. Hey, folks, we're going to have to take a quick break. When we come back, a couple coaching legends have left us, and we just want to reflect on on these really important figures um, and, and their and their connections to Duke University. We'll be back with that just after a quick break. All right, guys, we're back. And, uh, you know, some sad news uh, in the world of college basketball in just the past couple of days uh, Two, I mean, to call them giants, to call them legends, almost doesn't do it justice. John Thompson and Lute Olson, almost on the Mount Rushmore. These these guys are huge, huge figures in college basketball history. Uh, both guys who won national titles, who shaped the, the, the way the game was played and the way the game was talked about. John Thompson, you know, to to, some, to a large extent, ruled the Big East. Lou Olson certainly ruled the Pac-12 for for a time, um, and and we lost both of them, you know, in, in the span of hours this week. Uh, I, and we just want to reflect on it a little bit. Um, Donald, I'll go to you first. DC boy, John Thompson had to have been uh, just a giant, giant figure for you, you know, growing up and and for much of your life. Well, he was. I I mean, I didn't grow up in DC, but John Thompson was the black Americans coach. He was, he was the first black coach to win a uh, NCAA title. He, I mean, he made Georgetown into such a name that a lot of black people thought that Georgetown was a historic black college. That's the type of program that he built. And not only that, and, and I'm sure Sam may know a little bit about some of these stories, but the fact that he was an activist off the court, he was saving guys lives off the court. There's a, there's a poignant story about when he, uh, he realized that some of his players on the team were being wined and dined by a, a drug dealer, uh, a prominent drug dealer in DC. And he called that drug dealer into his office and he said, you will not go near my players ever again. And the drug dealer was like, coach, I respect you. You're the man. I won't go near him. And he didn't. And like things like that, where John Thompson was so well-respected by everyone. I, I will say this, you know, when it comes to tying it back to Duke a little bit, Yesterday, when the news came that he passed, uh, Coach K called to the sports center. Now, Coach K doesn't just call in to radio stations or or national programs to talk about anyone, but he called in to sports center to talk about John Thompson for six minutes and just talked about you know what their relationship was, what he meant to the game. And he meant a whole hell of a lot to a lot of people, but especially to to you know black athletes everywhere. I mean. Allen Iverson talks about how he literally saved his life. He was going to college and then he caught a case in high school, a very well-profiled case. Uh, and everyone shied away from him. And he said his mom drove up to Georgetown and talked to John Thompson and said, take a chance on my boy. And he did. And we now know Allen Iverson as Hall of Famer, you know, or, or soon to be Hall of Famer because he has one of the greatest careers ever. But John Thompson shaped a lot of lives uh, and on and off the basketball court. But on the basketball court, he was fierce. That towel uh, around his shoulder is something that's everything. Everyone knows what that means. Uh, and everyone, if, you, if you're just draping a towel over your shoulder, if you're wearing a suit, everyone knows exactly who you're referring to. And I saw a lot of tributes to that last night uh, and, and well-deserved. So rest in peace, Coach John Thompson. 
uh, one of the just absolute giants uh, of this game, college basketball, basketball period. I'll add that, you know, I'm, I, I grew up just outside of Washington, D.C. I'm a little too young to remember John Thompson coaching in his prime. Like, I, I, I don't remember Allen Iverson in college. I certainly don't remember Alonzo Mourning or Dikembe Mutombo. But um, John Thompson, is, as you said, Donald, is, is an enormous figure around D.C. So um, the, uh, he, he, he's, had, he's had impact, uh, like, throughout the community. And I said to you guys that, um, I only remember him as being a, a an old man on uh, on radio and, and being kind of grumpy. But I, I think that that stems from his long years of of carrying so much weight around with him because he was carrying the weight of his basketball program. But like Donald said, he was kind of carrying the weight of of the the black college basketball player around with him because he was the you know one of the earliest prominent black head coaches at a school that is not in a traditionally black neighborhood. Georgetown is a, is a fancy white neighborhood. And, and in a, you know, at a Jesuit school, this is not the kind of place that you would expect um, that you would expect a, a black man to, to create such a legacy, but John Thompson did. So uh, kudos to him for, uh, for leaving an, an enormous legacy and, and may he rest in peace. Yeah. So uh, I'll, I'll do a quick John Thompson story to connect it to Duke. Uh, John Thompson was a disciple of Dean Smith. And, and they were very, very close, very dear friends. And John Thompson said that uh, the first time he met Coach K, he really wanted to hate him because Coach K was at Duke and John Thompson was was very, you know, felt a great deal of allegiance to Dean Smith and, and to the UNC program. And John Thompson admitted that he was like, I really wanted to hate Coach K, but I sat down and chatted with him a little bit and I was like, oh God, this guy's a good guy. I can't do it. Um, and I, I know that Coach K felt very strongly about his relationship with John Thompson as well as indicated by the statement he gave yesterday and by calling in and all those other kind of things. So, so there's no question that, you know, John Thompson was someone, you know, sort of dear to the Duke program and, and Duke and Georgetown had some very significant battles when John Thompson was there, some, some very memorable games, but you want to talk about memorable games. Uh, Sam, I know this goes back well before your time, Donald, I'm not sure if you'll remember any of this as well. We, we also lost, lost Lute Olson of Arizona yesterday, uh, or in the past couple of days, I should say. And um, Duke and Arizona, this is back in my era, in the late 80s and early 90s, play, had a series. They would play every year, every other year. I think it was every other year, actually. Uh, and they would sort of alternate. Sometimes it was um, neutral court. Sometimes it was uh, at Arizona. And sometimes it was at Duke. Uh, they, they just played some absolutely epic, really significant games. Um uh, and and Coach K's interaction with Lou Olson was a major part of these games. In the 1980s, I'm going to give folks a little history lesson here. Because I said to Sam yesterday, we were talking a little bit about what we're going to do in this podcast. And I said, oh, I get, you know, we're going to talk about Lou Olson. I said, I guess I'm going to talk about the the game that caused, the, the, the referee game that caused Duke to end the series with Arizona. And Sam was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Right. So yeah, I, thought, I thought the most significant thing about Lute Olson was that he lost to Duke in the 2001 national championship. Ayo. No, <laughs> yes, that is, he did. Uh, but, but no, boy, wait, wait until you hear about this. So, so it starts in 1987 uh, and Duke is playing at Arizona in Tucson. Danny Ferry gets called for a foul and Lute Olson uh, and Danny Ferry shouts at the Arizona bench because he's upset at the foul. He goes, we're getting homered here. And Lute Olson starts to get in a shouting match with Danny Ferry. Coach K flips his lid 
I mean, he he goes up to Lou Dolson. He's like, he's like, you and me, we talk. We're the coaches. Don't talk to my players. I mean, the, the, they were like in each other's faces. It was it was a definite moment. Coach K was not pleased with the refereeing there. So we fast forward four years to 1991. Duke is again playing in Arizona, and this is this is the game that ended the series. Duke Duke refused to play in Arizona ever again after this. Uh, it, it was in February of 1991. I've looked this game up. It was a big deal game. Duke, Duke and Arizona both ranked in the top 10. The game went to double overtime. Arizona ends up winning the game. But the significant thing that happened was Greg Kubek of Duke hit a three-pointer in the first overtime that looked like it was going to you know, put Duke in really good shape to win the game. And then almost a minute after he hit it, the referees went back and said, no, 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 we're changing it. It was only a two-pointer. And by the way, the, the TV re replays, they made it clear. There was no question. Kubek was behind the line. It was a three-pointer for sure. And Coach K, uh, Coach K after the game said, uh, you know, there must have been some confusion. There was some problem at the scorer's table and with the referees tonight. I guess they're just not used to playing close games here and figuring out what happens in, in actual close games. But Coach K was apparently furious that – that he felt like the Pac-12 refs, the, the refs in Arizona, had jobbed Duke and robbed us of a victory in a very significant game. And he vowed, he said, I'm never playing here again. And Duke has, has never played in Tucson. We have never played at Arizona since that game. So, Sam, that is the sort of infamous referee game that ended what was a huge, great series uh, uh, you know, against Arizona. And, and, and my memories of Lou Dolson, you talk about the 2001, yes, Yes, Lou Dolson was on the opposing sideline in 2001, but my memory of him is, is opposing Duke in those late 80s, early 90s, just epic battles. Duke won most of them, but, but uh, it was one of the best series. You know, you would look forward to it every single year. And, and one last one, um, there is a game in the Duke-Arizona series in 1989 that is one of the most important losses in Duke history, and I'm going to explain to you why. Duke was playing in the Meadowlands and it was the game. Duke was trailing 77 to 75 with only four seconds left in the game. Uh, and, and a freshman for Duke who was on the floor got, um, uh, got fouled and had a one and one that he could hit to tie the game and send it to overtime against Arizona. Big deal. Again, both teams ranked in the top five. Uh, and that freshman for Duke missed the front end of the one and one and Duke lost that game. And, and he afterwards, he vowed, he said, I'm never missing another clutch. He was so upset at himself. He said, I'm never missing another clutch shot. And that freshman, of course, was Christian Leitner, who would go on to make more than his fair share of clutch shots uh, after that. And that, that is sort of the one failure that led to Christian becoming the guy who never failed in the, in the heat of the moment again in the rest of his career. I do want to add, I was actually at that game. So my senior year... Me and three of my buddies road tripped from Durham up to up to New York, up to the Meadowlands to see that game. This was the road trip from hell. I mean, we got into an accident with our car at one point, so we had to ditch it and pick up a rental car. We got a ticket, I know. We went to Atlantic City, lost all our money, didn't even have enough money to pay tolls on the way home, and Duke lost the game. It, it, was, it was a bad road trip. This you is drove, not a good you, road trip. <laughs> you drove on 95. Like, what did you expect was going to happen? Yeah, you're probably right about that. But so those are my memories of Lou Olson. You know, again, a giant uh, guy who made the Arizona. Arizona is still a prominent program today because of what Lou Olson did to make that program in the past.
and and you know guys there's there's you know yet another death it's not directly in uh, in the basketball world but but it's something that people in the basketball world have noted a lot donald i know you wanted to talk about this just just go ahead and give it to me buddy well, guys, there's actually two that I want to briefly note. The first one actually is in the world of basketball. Uh, Clifford Robinson, uh, who played for a decade and a half in the NBA, played on several teams, including my Detroit Pistons. He passed away uh, over the weekend. Uh, you know him by the headband. And I think one of the cool tributes uh, that I saw was uh, all of Portland, uh, who he spent a lot of years with uh, in their final game in the playoffs against the Lakers. They all wore headbands, uh, black headbands to kind of pay tribute to him. Uh, I, I think the way the NBA kind of does these subtle yet poignant tributes uh, is something that we've seen a lot of over the last few days. And I think it's something that's really remarkable that they do that. And it's a you know, fitting touch to a guy who really was one of the great players in the NBA. He was a great competitor. And, you know, a lot of players uh, have commented on how he was so tough to play against and so warm off the field or, or off the court uh, to to be around. So uh, rest in peace to Uncle Cliff, as they called him uh, back in the day. But also I want to note on the passing of Chadwick Boseman. Now you're thinking this doesn't have anything to do with basketball, but it does because Chadwick was obviously a really big uh, basketball fan. He, and, and his role as several different, you know, incredible uh, black uh, people uh, in his movies, Thurgood Marshall, uh, Jackie Robinson, but really his role as black Panther is one that was for, for us. And a lot of guys, um, really took that to heart he took that to heart and and the, just the fight that he had he i mean he passed away from colon cancer and he didn't tell anyone uh at least publicly that he had it so he did all these movies while still fighting this disease and and you know i know someone who who passed away from colon cancer a couple of years ago uh it, it's it's a terrible fight and the way that he was able to put that strength uh and really and do everything that he was asked of, do all his movies to perfection, do all of the the publicity around that. And also even the charity work that he did volunteering uh, by showing up as Black Panther at children's hospitals to entertain kids. Um, a lot of guys on the court were paying tribute to him by throwing up the Wakanda salute uh, during the moments of silence that they had, or, or just marveling about the fact that, you know, they talked about Victor Oladipo and the, Dunk contest a couple years ago did a Black Panther dunk. He got the he got the mask from Chadwick Boseman uh, back in 2018. It's a very cool dunk. Uh, go back and look at it. But that you know intertwining between movies and, and and pop culture and sports has always been linked. But it, when it comes to Chadwick Boseman and it comes to the Black Panther role uh, and even Jackie Robinson uh, it, when he played him in 42, his role kind of you know really, really had an intertwining with these athletes. And you see how they were playing the other night for him. They were, you know, talking about him. But really, you know, for all Black Americans, this was a huge gut punch after all that we've been through. And for the, you know, the guys on the court, it was no exception. But the fact that they took time out to honor him shows you what he meant to basketball, what he meant to sports in general, and what he just meant to the culture. Uh, so I just wanted to make a, a brief note of that. Uh, those two guys, Cliff Robertson and uh, Chadwick Boseman, both of them gone way, 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 way too soon. Uh, but we appreciated them while they were here. Yeah, I'll tell you, when I saw the news about Chadwick Boseman, um, I, I just happened to be on Twitter uh, just minutes after it, it, it 
it happened, it was announced, and and I did. I, I thought that this has to be a, a horrible joke. There's no way this could be true. Uh, he was a a real giant in the acting world. You've seen the tributes just pouring in from all corners of uh, of both you know Hollywood and and other um, industries, other other people who who have, were affected by his performances and and appreciated what he put on the screen and and the passion that he brought to his to his work. Um, we, we are a poorer place to not have him in it, but we are a much richer place to have to have had him for the short time that we did. So, I will say I will say that the the tweet that you mentioned from his official Twitter announcing his passing uh, in 12 hours became the most liked and most retweeted tweet of all time. And that just shows you just the effect that he had on everybody. Uh, whether you were in, in sports or in entertainment, you were affected by that. You, just, the sh- just the shocking nature of it, uh, just the announcement. And really just, again, how he affected everything that we do every you know every movie that we see now uh i mean even just for people who are in the marvel cinematic universe or or in other parts that is uh, none of that will ever be the same and it it shows the impact that he left uh and the legacy that he left in such a short time look uh there's a simple truth we should all hope to lead a life where at the end of that life bozos like the three of us spend 20 minutes on a silly podcast talking about the impact we had on society. So all four of these guys that, we, that we've mentioned in the past few minutes, uh, like I said earlier, w- the world is a better place for them having been in it. And that, that is what we should all strive to achieve. All right, guys, we're going to wrap it up with a quick conversation about the future of NCAA basketball. I think that we may have stumbled across the branding that the NCAA is going to try and put on, if not basketball, certainly some of its championships, some of the ways it's going to try and play sports, a trademark attorney. And it is not often that we talk about trademark attorneys on this podcast, but a trademark attorney happened to stumble across a trademark the other day that from the NCAA trademarking these words. Are you ready for them? Battle in the bubble. The NCAA has trademarked battle in the bubble. And it has said, we plan to use this connected to sports and we are planning to put it on apparel like shirts and hats and things like that. I think that we now have some idea of what the NCAA is going to try to call its effort to get sports really going again. They're going to call it the battle in the bubble. Sam, what is your feeling about the NCAA marketing geniuses and the battle in the bubble? Well, we we bring this topic to the forefront as I'm drinking this morning out of my out of my oversized plastic March Madness cup that I think I got from Omaha a couple of years ago, maybe or I don't know. It could be from a it could be from another year, but uh, it is March Madness. Yes, the NCAA has done this before quite successfully. <laughs> yes, yes. March Madness is a is a property that the NCAA owns, and this is just a great reminder that if nothing else, the NCAA is an organization that just has a brand. Like that's that's kind of their main their main reason for existence is to run the basketball tournament. We know that they are uh, immensely careful stewards of their brand. When you watch March Madness on TV, you only see March Madness logos. You only see the corporate sponsors that are related to the NCAA, whether the game is being played in Spokane or Boston or Miami, no matter where the NCAA tournament is, you only see NCAA logos and the official NCAA corporate sponsors. So yes, I am not surprised that they are all over 
um, trademarking whatever they might need to pull off an NCAA tournament in a bubble in March, April, May, June, whenever that is going to be, um, they they are ready for it. Will they have the all the other logistics in place? Will the will the conferences want to participate? Stay tuned. But until then, um, no, this isn't surprising to me at all. Uh, it, it's always fun when when people dig up stuff like this, and uh, and and at least it means that they're that that they're that they're planning well in advance. Which I, I think of all the things we could say about about the leaders of college athletics the last few months, maybe this means that their planning is improving because it seems like they've done a lot of waiting and seeing, and now they're now they're finally getting ahead of it. I like how this uh, discovery uh, by this trademark attorney uh, has led to us, A, knowing what their plans are, while B, not really knowing anything. Uh, because this could be related to early season, you know, those preseason, preseason, I, I say in air quotes, uh, the tournaments that we have, like the, you know, Maui Classic and all that stuff. But this could also mean that they're preparing for the possibility that the March Madness tournament won't occur in March. And if, if March Madness doesn't occur in March, can you still call it March Madness? No, you can call it the battle in the bubble. And I think- And wait, hold on. We haven't even talked about the fact that the bubble is already a term that is associated with March Madness. So right. the NCAA is all over, the, right? The teams that are that are on the cusp of making the NCAA tournament are on said the to bubble. be on mm-hmm. the bubble. So- uh, Could this I, be I that playing game? Could this be that playing game? How many how many commentators are going to be talking about teams leading into the tournament and saying so and so is on the bubble, but the rest of these teams are in the bubble? You're going to get tired of it even before it happens. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, this thing is you you don't know what part they're they're going to apply it to, and then they're going to. I still hold out some skepticism on the NCAA because I know they're going to apply it in a way that I'm going to be like, really? That's what we waited for? We waited all year to have you apply bet on the bubble to this like four team like preseason tournament? Okay, fine. Go ahead with it. Take, no, take this, the bread. This, this but this is something the, I think is going to be, be some, the big tournament. Yeah, it has to be just in case, you know, the NCAA tournament isn't occurring in March. But it, again, it could also apply to that, you know, those two playing games. I'm sorry, those four playing games that they have where those guys that are, quote, on the bubble get to play themselves into the tournament uh, and, and they call the battle in the bubble. So we'll see how, how they use it. Uh, but they, at least they're thinking forward when it comes to this. Look, we, we've sort of stumbled our way into talking about the, the future of this college basketball season. And I will say this, I, I don't think any of us know, and, and by any of us, I don't mean just the three of us on this podcast. I mean, any of us, including lots of the higher ups at the NCAA, including Coach K even, I don't think any of us know yet exactly what form the season is going to take. Um, there's been a lot of talk, the, the NCAA, like the Board of Governors and and folks involved with college basketball are probably in the next week or two going to come out with dates that they're going to start the season. They're probably going to push the start of the season back a little bit as they try and figure things out a little bit more. I've heard a lot of talk of December 4th, I believe, um, as a date uh, that, that could likely start the season just after Thanksgiving. A lot of the theory is you don't want to get it going before Thanksgiving. Um, and, and it's entirely possible that they will push things back, like you guys said, out of March. Um, uh, and, and no one knows... You know, the NCAA tournament may be very different. It, it may be that this is the year that they only do 64 teams as opposed to 68. You know, a lot of stuff unknown, but you guys are right. I think we now know, I strongly suspect, as Donald, as you said, that battle in the bubble is what we're going to call the NCAA tournament this year. 
um, if we don't call it March Madness. And I think it's pretty likely just the way things work out that it may slip beyond March uh, at least a little bit. And Coach K has been on the record as saying, look, I don't care if you wait until May. He said, you play an NCAA tournament. It is too important from a revenue standpoint for the NCAA for you to skip another NCAA tournament. They, they uh, and, and most of the experts are saying there's no way that they will have to find a way to play an NCAA tournament. It's just it's too much money. It's just too important. So I, I think a couple weeks ago when uh, we discussed Coach K's comments on uh, on that radio show on ESPN, he mentioned that September 10th is when the NCAA had promised a proposal to basketball coaches about how they're going to pursue the season. And I think that December 4th uh, date that you mentioned was something that has been thrown out. And I think it makes sense because the way that this has been set up across America, the majority of college campuses are planning to finish all of their fall semester classes before Thanksgiving. And so it will give the chance for college teams, basketball teams to establish a bubble of some sort. Now, when it comes to when the t- when it's going to be played, I mean, like Coach K said, we don't even know when the NBA season is going to start. And that's usually how they dictate, you know, how all these, you know, deadlines with people entering the draft, the combine and the, in the NBA draft itself, having a having a March Madness doesn't really make sense when the NBA is not going to start until maybe after Christmas. So and, and that'll pers- and that'll delay just everything. So. I think Coach K is right in saying, let's take our time. This battle in the bubble thing of, of having this outside of March may be the, 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 the compromise here. Uh, but I think September 10th is when we should be looking for something from the NCAA on how they plan to pursue a college basketball season safely. And so much can change between now and September 10th. It's uh, just a little more than a week away, but we have seen uh, this this horrible pandemic, this virus just uh, keeps on throwing us for loops and changing things on us and all that kind of stuff. But the one constant that all of you can count on is that we will be here to tell you about it when it happens, to talk about Duke basketball and college basketball and all the other stuff going on. So, but that is going to wrap it up here on episode 227 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. I am Jason Evans, Sam Klein. Thank you for joining us. Donald Wine, thanks for being here. We are going to wrap it up here and hand it over to the Duke Band. Guys, take us home.